Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. What you missed this week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Closed show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television. What'd you miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. We all watched Adam Newman's dramatic fall from grace, but his exit did not mark the end of his company, WeWork, or the larger co-working space industry. Competitors are still out there trying to prove to investors that the business model works. This week, we sat down with one of those rivals. Edward Chipman is the founder and CEO of Tribes Inspiring Workplaces. Tribes bills itself as a community of business nomads and operates in a number of cities across Europe. We began by asking him if WeWork and its now infamous founder, Adam Newman, was good for his business and the industry overall. To be honest, he was very good for our business because in the end, the market understood what co-working was or is. I mean, it's a word before that it was called business centers, meeting centers, and now it's called co-working. But because of his brand and the way he performed in the media, uh, a lot of corporations, but a lot of people did understand and understand what co-working is and that you can indeed lease workspaces for a shorter period than 10 years. So that worked out pretty well. And what about growth continuing in the space, the desire yeah. for people, the nomads, as yeah. you call yeah. them, to come yeah. and work in your spaces? Is growth as it always has been? Well, the growth is even better. We had our best sales months in October. Uh, the reason is that I think uh, the square meter is yeah, under pressure. Uh, there is not a lot of buildings available. If you look at the Amsterdam market, for example, where we are operating, uh, there is hardly any vacancy. Uh, it's 99.4% occupied, the wow. same in Frankfurt, the same in Brussels. So there is not, of, uh, not a lot of buildings. So people are looking for square meters or uh, workplaces to sit and to run their uh, operations, and it's difficult to get. If you compare it, for example, example, uh, on all lease contract contracts in Amsterdam, only 5% is in on operating uh, companies. So there's still a lot to grow. Okay, so square meters in Europe, square feet here in the U.S. Yeah. Compare and contrast um, how the operations differ and how yeah. co-working differs in yeah. Europe versus the U.S. Yeah. Well, um, of course, we are a little bit more conservative. So most of the models, uh, operating models in uh, Europe are profitable like Tribes Inspiring Workplaces. We exist now for four years, but we are a profitable business and we had to show ourselves that we could make money because otherwise, why should you grow your business? And of course, if you enter again in New York and in the US, everything is on growth, growth. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 and that's a little bit different in the, the conservative part of the world, especially on the continent Europe. Uh, and the other difference is um, there's a lot of laws uh, um, we have 
So uh, somebody who wants to work in a place needs as an employee at least 6.4 square meter. And that's not obvious in the US, in New York. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, if I look at this lovely building on Bloomberg, <laughs> you're sitting night and tidy to each other. Uh, but that couldn't be possible in Europe. So there is a difference in operations. Interestingly, what you've been said in the past is that WeWork, to a certain extent, had been undercutting, had been offering very cheap offerings to those who were other, you know, perhaps putting too much pressure on the market. Do you think that we're seeing a rationalization if they start to come out of the market or they have to operate from a profitable perspective rather than a growth perspective? Yeah. Will we get a healthy dose of rationalization when it comes to the prices being offered in co-working spaces? Yeah, yeah well, I think in the end, uh, you should have and run a profitable business to, uh, to, to be sure that you are still there. If I talk to our clients, they really want to know that we will be there in three to four years time because that are the length of the leases contracts we are now closing um, uh, they don't want to change from operator so they want to continue on the same operator and they don't want to change that so they also want to be quiet for all their employees working with them and therefore uh, it's good that you can show the market that you are still there and that you will exist in a longer period now um, with WeWork's demise and not not demise so much as it's aggressive cost cutting right now. What kind of opportunities has that created for you? Are you able to pick up some steep discounts that were offered to WeWork and pick up some of the the office space that they had planned to take up? Yeah. Well, in the end, I don't think it's about price only. Uh, it's one of the, the, the P's in the marketing mix, uh, price, but it's also about services and products. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that you should serve your customer instead of uh, hook them up in offices. Uh, and in the end, what I can see is that a customer also wants a contract with a company which exists for a longer period. So uh, for me, it's clear that... Um, yeah, well, big corporations are doing business with corporations who are profitable. Interestingly, our excellent reporter Gillian Tan had previously reported that you perhaps have, an, in hindsight, a lucky escape. You turned down investment from WeWork. That was in 2015, indeed. And instead, you took it from Oak Tree. Yep. What's the benefit of taking money from O2 Capital? What are they given to you and how pleased uh, are you that you didn't yeah, take it from yeah. WeWork? Well, everybody warned me, of course, that private equity is uh, working difficult with private equity company. But I have to say, this is a very nice company which guided us uh, through these years, uh, working now with them for three years. Uh, and they learned on us also a lot, um, to be honest, not on our own expertise. Uh, but we worked quite well and we saw through that we were indeed profitable on locations uh, now in March, but on the whole company since June. And that was exactly three years when they uh, invested in us. Are you still needing investment? No. We don't need investment. We can grow our own uh, uh, portfolio now. But if we really want to grow, yeah, we need, of course, investment because if you open a location, it costs a lot of money. And now yeah. the question is, should you, we grow our business or should we be teeny weeny small? But in the end, I'm a very ambitious person, so I want to grow the market and uh, grow the business. And indeed, um, well, we will look. We have proven that our business model is profitable. And now we're going to look what we are going to do. A group of U.S. lawmakers, led by Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio, has introduced legislation that would ban a federal retirement fund from investing in Chinese stocks. Their main target? The MSCI All-Country World Ex-U.S. Investable Market Index. 
That index represents 99% of the international equity market, with a 7.5% weighting to Chinese firms. Well, now MSCI is pushing back after Rubio sent the global index provider a public letter accusing them of funneling billions of dollars in Americans' retirement accounts into Chinese companies that are linked to human rights abuses and national security threats. So we spoke with someone trying to help people better evaluate the human rights implications of their investments. Perth Toll founded Life and Liberty Indexes, which uses a freedom-weighting approach that overweights freer countries and underweights less free ones, and excludes the worst human rights offenders. We began by asking Perth how her company quantifies a country's record on human rights to make it an investable factor. Yeah, so the data has to be very robust, it has to be transparent, it has to be objective. So we use data from the Cato Institute, the Fraser Institute, and the Friedrich Niemann Foundation for Freedom out of Germany. They have a joint uh, project called the Human Freedom Index and Dataset that we use. And we've worked with these guys for quite some time. We op operate independently from them, and mm -hmm. they are independent from us, so we don't influence their scoring in any way. And they score each country on a, um, a, a, a set of... Uh, variables, 79 different variables encompassing rights to human freedoms and economic freedoms. And I break it down into three categories, rights to life, rights to liberty, and rights to property. So they use 79 quantified variables. I use the composite country score to then determine my country weights and allocations. Okay, so we have the top five or top four countries uh, that were on there. China, one of them. Uh, how do you, I mean, how do you structure sort of an investment plan that sort of factors China out of the, equest out of the equation yeah. when it's such a huge market, at least whether it's for consumer goods, manufacturing, and now technology? Yeah, so you're talking about the excluded countries. Yes. China is one of the Correct. excluded. Yeah. yeah, so we don't have any, um, any allocation to China, okay. Russia, Egypt. But when you say allocation, I mean, what about indirect allocation? I mean, can you invest in, I don't know, Apple or Tesla, mm. which yes. you know, are setting up, you know, phys you have physical operations Absolutely. There? You cannot get away from indirect China allocation. Okay. So right. every emerging market does trade with China, sure. invest in China. We're, we're, you know, we have big allocations in Taiwan, South Korea, Chile, all big traders with China. And so we have that indirect allocation, which, which is also in the market cap weighted indexes. And really the market cap weighted indexes, the problem that Marco Rubio and his team is having with them is that they have 30 to 35% in China, direct allocation, plus all this indirect allocation, and plus they're adding A shares. So they're about to quadruple the amount of A shares they have in the, in the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. And so that's a lot of direct mm. and indirect allocation. Mm -hmm. We do have indirect allocation to China, absolutely. We can't get away from that, um, but we don't have the direct allocation. We just saw pictures of Marco Rubio there. How much has this focus from the government and potentially talks of capital, you know, a capital war that's brewing between the US and China, how much has that delivered people of interest in your particular indices? Have you seen an uptick? Yeah, so I've seen a lot more interest. I don't know uh, if that's going to turn into anything bigger than that. Um, we, as freedom indexers, do not typically advocate for government interference in private markets. So we are here to, you know, the good news is we have a uh, private free market solution for it already. So, you know, we don't arbitrarily exclude China or any other country. We use freedom weighting so that the freer countries get a higher weight, the less free countries get a lower weight. And the worst of offenders are excluded just naturally because of the freedom weighting. So, so that's what we try to bring, um, a different option for investors who maybe don't want that China exposure in their uh, emerging markets like Marco Rubio, but uh, still want to invest in emerging markets. So everyone likes the idea that you can get higher returns and also invest with 
you know, in more in line with your values. And so people pitch green indices or other uh, funds and indexes that associate with something about sustainability and they find a way to say that it also delivers better returns. When you look historically at how your uh, approach does, how important is uh, democratic uh, accountability and human rights in the long-term performance of uh, various markets? Yeah, so we're looking at very long-term, and if you look at history, you can see that the freer markets tend to be more dynamic and the less free markets tend to be, uh, they tend to stagnate. So you can, the, the best example of that right now is probably Venezuela as the, uh, the most unfree market in the index uh, or in the, in the data set that we use, not in our index. Um, so, so yeah, freer markets tend to have more sustainable returns. They tend to recover faster from drawdowns and they tend to use their capital and labor mm. more efficiently and have less capital flight and capital destruction. So in the long run, yes, we absolutely expect freer countries to outperform, but you can't look at that on a day-to-day basis. You have to look at decades. Carlos Ghosn was once a jet-setting captain of the auto industry, heading up both Nissan and Renault. But one year ago, he was arrested in Japan on allegations of financial misconduct. He's currently out on bail awaiting trial. His wife, Carol Ghosn, has been an outspoken critic of Japan's legal process throughout the investigation, even calling it a hostage justice system. Now, Carol is pushing for her husband to face trial in France. She says the former CEO will not be given a fair hearing in Tokyo. A year after her husband's arrest, I sat down exclusively with Carol Ghosn. I began by asking her about the restrictions of his release. First of all, I haven't seen my husband in almost eight months or spoken to him. This is the first bail restriction they they put on us. And actually in this one year, yesterday was his one year of his arrest, I've only seen him one month. Um, So this is the first very hard and severe and inhumane restriction that's on us. They have no reason because I have nothing to do with the case legally. I'm not involved, so we don't understand why they won't let us see each other. Now, the Japanese prosecutors argue that you shouldn't be allowed to see each other because you've criticized the Japanese legal system. You could conspire and exchange material. And as well, they say that you've participated in the destruction of evidence. How do you respond to that? First of all, it's not true. I didn't, I knew nothing about my husband's business, so there's nothing to destruct. That's, it's not true. And uh, second of all, I did not criticize their system. I think I stated the facts of how my husband was treated when he was detained and about their, what is called now their hostage justice system, how they, you know, detain a person and they don't, they don't allow a lawyer to be present while he's being interrogated, and he, it's under very severe conditions, and they keep them there, they coerce them until they confess. Mm. That's why they have a 99.4 conviction rate, just like China and Russia, because of the system that they have in place. But the system that's in place applies to everyone. You worry, I know, that Carlos won't get fair treatment because he's not Japanese, because he's a foreigner. What evidence do you have to suspect that? Well, there was the, after my husband got arrested, there was a Japanese CEO who took his place called Mr. Saikawa. Mm-hmm. And then Mr. Saikawa, we find out that he earned uh, unearned money. He had money that he wasn't supposed to receive. 
And my husband did not take any money and was arrested for 130 days in solitary confinement. This man admitted to taking money and he gets, he gets fired. He gets to go home to his wife, live a normal life while I haven't seen my husband in, in like almost, I told you, eight months. And, and he was detained for 130 days in solitary confinement. But it's not just the charges that Carlos faces from Japan. In September, Carlos settled with the SEC, civil charges that he hid more than $140 million in compensation. Doesn't this hurt his case in Japan? Because a judge in Japan could see this as this settlement as weakening his argument that he was framed. He settled in the U.S. because he wanted to focus on his trial in Japan. He didn't want to open two fronts. And when he settled with the SEC, there was no admission or denial. So, I mean, to make it clear, there was uh, they, even the SEC says there was no money taken. Mm -hmm. So the SEC and Carlos Ghosn's settlement did not involve any admission or wrongdoing, but what about the accusations themselves that he misreported income, that there was misused company funds? Okay, mis misreported income. They've accused Carlos of a future bonus that he's going to receive once he retires. The bonus was not approved. He didn't sign off on it. The board did not sign off on it. So how can you arrest a person and put them in jail for money he has not received and he hasn't even been approved? You know, so apparently this Japanese system, this judicial system, because they wanted to get rid of him, because they did not want to merge with Renault, the French company, and they were scared of this merger. They found the easiest way to do it was to put my husband in jail. This was the way they wanted to get rid of him. Don't you think there could have been a more civil way to do this? Couldn't they have the board have met with him and spoken to him and said, we'd like you to step down? This is so violent and they've destroyed our lives. And they've, you know, we are scarred forever. And over what? Mm -hmm. If you think about it, who has won in this? Nissan, they're, they're, you saw how badly they're doing. Renault is doing badly. Japan, their reputation has been ruined. I don't know what foreign businessman would think twice of doing, a, you know, working in Japan after what happened to my husband. And, and my husband's life has been destroyed. And the alliance, this, you know, this merger between Renault and Nissan has been destroyed. So who won in this? The thing is, though, when you look at the situation and Carlos is uh, out on bail, bail is more the exception than the rule in Japan. Judges in Japan are less likely to grant bail to those who fight charges. Do you think that all the pressure and all the publicity surrounding his arrest led to their granting bail, not once, but twice, because it's not typical for them to grant yes, bail. Yes, I think because they've been criticized a lot um, and their system, I, I didn't know anything about their system. I'm sure a lot of us didn't know that they were so strict and severe. And there's so much Western criticism that I think they decided for political reasons to let him out on bail, but to put him under very severe and strict bail conditions. Mm -hmm. And so they're still punishing him. He's still being held hostage. Now, Carlos holds French, Lebanese, and Brazilian passports. He has children who live in the United States. You've called upon President Macron, President Trump, and Bolsonaro to intervene and to help Carlos. How far along have you gotten in this request for help? Wow. Well, it's it's a long fight. Um, so, I mean, I've uh, yes, I've called upon all of them. The French have finally started to react. Uh, actually, President Sarkozy was in um, 
in Japan for the maybe two, three weeks ago, and he met with my husband with the approval of Macron. And uh, also now a bunch of uh, French uh, government senators and ministers have signed a petition to repatriate Carlos to France or to get him more humane treatment. So the French are finally moving. The Americans, unfortunately, um, I haven't seen anything yet, even though I am an American citizen and I've been deprived of my rights from seeing my husband and Carlos's children are American. And I'd like to see more involvement from the American government, especially since Japan is part of the G7 mm. and they've signed all these international treaties and obviously they violated all these human rights treaties with the treatment of my husband. I'm, or we've seen it. I'm sure they've done it before, but now it's, you know, it's out in the open. How about Brazil? Brazil, we're trying. Also, we haven't gotten as far as we'd like, but we're, we're trying. And what specifically do you want them to do? Uh, first of all, I'd, I'd like for my husband to get a fair trial. At this point, it, from what we've been seeing during the pre-trial, it doesn't look like he's going to get a fair trial. Or I'd like him to get repatriated to France and let them, you know, judge him in France. Okay, so the first preference is for him to be repatriated to France. Absolutely. Now, in terms of the timing of a trial, we're hearing that it could be sometime next year, April 2020. Others say it'll be after the Olympics. What are you hearing? Either way, it's a long time. It's, you know, it's like I said, it's been a year already. We still don't have all the documents. He can't defend himself. They haven't given us all the documents. And they're saying maybe it's April, maybe it's after the Olympics. And of course, I'm sure they want it after the Olympics because they don't want anything to ruin the reputation of Japan during the Olympics, especially since Abe is trying to globalize Japan and changing the image of an isolated country to opening it up. Um, but, you know, we have nothing firm. Till now, we don't have all the documents. So how could my husband defend himself? And why is it taking so long? From what we hear, it's because they have no evidence. They've put him away, and now they're looking for evidence. How are, how are you coping with this situation? You say that you can't communicate with your husband, you can't see him. How do you get updates from him? How do you get updates to him? It's been the hardest year of my life. Um, I communicate with him. I ask about him through his children and his sisters. Mm -hmm. um, and this is how I communicate with him. But, at, you know, at a time where I need him the most and he needs me the most and they're purposely punishing us. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't understand why they're harsh. He's done so much good for Japan and they treat him with so much evil. Has he been able to see his son, Anthony? Uh, I No, Anthony hasn't gone to Japan. Okay. Um, you are obviously very outspoken on this. You've spent a lot of time talking about what's going on with Carlos. The lawyers have told you that anything you say could hurt him in the trial. Why do you continuously speak out? I'm not speaking about the legal case. I'm speaking about the human rights side to it, you know, and I find it so inhumane not being able to see him and his detention to be detained in solitary confinement, to have the lights on 24-7, not to be, have a lawyer present, to take showers twice a week, to have 30 minutes walk on the roof only five days a week. Uh, why, why are they so harsh? What has he done? Why is he being treated this way over what? In the US or in Europe or in, in other democracies, he would not have done a day in jail for this. 
So you're saying that it, in Japan it's guilty until until proven until innocent. Proven innocent. Yeah. I know that you've spent a lot of time uh, traveling around. Uh, you have homes in New York and also in Europe. Have you gone back to Japan? Have you set foot in Japan? Um, you know, I was with him the second time he got arrested, and I was traumatized the way they treated me. And I saw like a small percentage of how they treat the people that are detained.、Um, Frankly, it's、uh, it's very scary.、Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had to go back a few days later to testify because they said, "Oh, she ran away." I did not run away. I was scared. I was all by myself in a country that I knew no one. They took all my phones. I couldn't communicate. And、uh, I went back and I testified in good faith, and、uh, and I've been cleared. And since then, since I can't see him, why am I going to go to Japan? It's too painful.、Mm-hmm. And has anyone from Japan reached out to you? Do you get messages of condolences from Japan? Just his lawyers. Now, after our conversation, a judge in Japan allowed Carol and Carlos to speak through video conferencing with a lawyer present. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions. July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor: Amazon. Official airline: Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com/GreenFestival. This week, the protests in Hong Kong pushed the city to the brink of chaos. Clashes between demonstrators and police were some of the most dramatic witnessed over the past five months. Hong Kong Polytechnic University became the site of a four-day siege with law enforcement, while U.S. lawmakers took their own most dramatic steps yet to support the pro-democracy protesters. Congress overwhelmingly passed legislation that would require an annual review of Hong Kong's special trading status, as well as sanction Chinese officials who committed human rights abuses in the city. So we took a two-pronged approach to the news. First, we got the geopolitical side of the story from Michael Herson. He's practice head of China and Northeast Asia at the Eurasia Group. We discussed how the unrest could impact U.S.-China trade negotiations, and began by asking Michael, who had just returned from Hong Kong, about what the mood was like on the ground. The mood in Hong Kong is negative.、Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that people are fearful of an imminent. Crackdown by Beijing. I still think there's a fairly high bar for that,、mm-hmm. but clearly the political situation is fluid. The security situation is fluid as well, and then within the financial community, there's a long-term concern, maybe even not long-term, medium-term, about Hong Kong's future role as a financial hub, just given the political security situation. In terms of the U.S.-China relationship, is there risk that the two issues intersect trade and Hong Kong and derails in some way or complicates the trade、uh, negotiations? I think the risk is definitely there. I think at the the current level, so we assume that the bill will pass. President Trump will probably sign it because it will have a veto-proof、uh, majority, so he might as well. Um, so the bill, in and of itself, isn't going to disrupt these Phase One negotiations. The administration has a lot of wiggle room in terms of the actions that they actually use to interpret the bill and follow up on. The, the danger is if the security political situation in Hong Kong worsens, then the administration、mm. will be backed into a corner in terms of、uh, holding its fire with Hong Kong. And so, 
at the current level, it's a watch point, but this could easily become an issue where if it worsens, then it's going to make it that much harder for this phase one deal to get finalized. If the U.S. isn't willing to sort of play that role of sort of pushing back uh, on uh, an escalation by China of the situation in Hong Kong, are there any other countries that could fill that role? Well, other countries are speaking up. The U.K. has something of a special obligation to Hong Kong, mm-hmm. uh, given that it used to be you know, a U.K. Uh, territory. But the U.S., I think, is it will be a noticeable silence if the U.S. doesn't speak up. And if President Trump doesn't speak up, you'll hear more calls from Congress looking to force his hand to box him in. Thus far, Beijing has, as you said, shown restraint to a certain degree. They've left it up to... Hong Kong and Hong Kong itself to try and prevent the protests. Why has President Xi not acted more? What is the backlash from his perspective? I think there are just serious risks. There's potential financial risks uh, in terms of the stability of, of Hong Kong with an impact on China. There's the diplomatic backlash. And then there's just this practical consideration of you go into Hong Kong, what do you do? You're, you're, the mainland is in the risk of stepping into a quagmire that worsens the situation and is very hard to de-escalate. So for now, I think Beijing is perfectly content to have the Hong Kong police force be the, you know, the, the, the front end of this and is focused on more of the long game, which is looking to bring Hong Kong to order. And that means both in a physical security sense, but also strengthening some of the legal uh, authority that Beijing has over Hong Kong. And that, that looks like the next effort by Beijing. There are a lot of critics, obviously, of the president's approach to dealing with China. We all know that. That being said, I think perhaps because of the trade war and because of what we're seeing in Hong Kong, there's a level of discussion about things going on in China, say, for example, treatment of the Muslim minority in China, that you just didn't hear much about before. And there's a lot of criticism about human rights abuses. And you have people like Senator Marco Rubio calling for entities in the U.S. to divest from their China exposure. I'm curious, so let's say even if there is a phase one trade deal or even if the trade war does get put on hold, what degree have the events of the last several months and years could they permanently sort of change the relationship between the U.S. and China? I, I think that's a great point. I mean, my expectation for the next year is we probably will get to a phase one, not guaranteed, yeah. in coming months. And then the action is going to shift to all of these foreign policy national security issues. It may not be Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. trade representative, who's putting pressure on China. will come more from the White House, from the national security establishment, because they are determined to confront Beijing over all of these issues. So a a truce on trade, on tariffs, doesn't mean that we're going to see a slowdown of actions against Chinese technology companies, actions on the human rights front. I think that's very much going to be the story for the next year. And those pressures will weigh on the sustainability of this trade deal. When we talk about maybe what the resolution could be to the situation in Hong Kong, you were just there. There seemed to be a sentiment, at least early on in these protests, that this was sort of Hong Kong united, or at least you know as united as you can be in a society like that. I'm starting to get the sense now that that's not necessarily the case. I think that's right. I mean, this this political crisis, had it been addressed back in June, we might have seen an easy resolution. But now there are some really deep fissures within Hong Kong society and within the identity that Hong Kong has relative to the mainland. So it's going to be very difficult to see a reconciliation process. And the next few weeks are likely to be critical. We're at the moment right now where some of the 
the support for the more extreme protesters mm -hmm. has declined as people become worried about the level of violence, but certainly it's still there. And so the, the challenge right now for the Hong Kong authorities is can they find some way to defuse tensions? And it's going to be very difficult. They have not handled this well to date, and they've misread a lot of the political signals. So I think it's going to be quite dicey. Then we got the market perspective from Rory Green. He's a China economist at TS Lombard, and Damian Sassauer, chief emerging market credit strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. We discussed how investors were weighing the escalating protests in Hong Kong and what impact they're having on the city's economy. I mean, I think it was relatively low volumes. I think there was a lot of bullish sentiment around the U.S.-China trade talks overnight. And I think that probably more than anything, I haven't seen or heard of any real tangible evidence of, of Beijing coming in and supporting uh, Hong Kong equities. But look, I mean, you could talk about trade talk optimism. You could talk about short covering. We've seen it all. We could talk about the high dividend yield of Hong Kong stocks. For me, you got to look at the funding markets. you got to look at the short term of the fixed income curve to really get a sense of these dislocations and what happens next for, for, for Hong Kong, right? I mean, we've got Hong Kong basically revising down GDP. It's going to be in recession. It's going to contract by 1.3% for this year, pretty much. It could be as much as 1.5. But if you just kind of look forward at the funding markets, I mean, you've got three-month you know, dollar Hong Kong yields at their widest differential since 1999. I mean, what does this kind of open the door for? It tells me that you're going to have some real volatility in the front end. It can really create some risk of capital flights, some real funding concerns at the short end of the curve. And that's what we're really watching, Caroline. Rory, when we got the last uh, batch of economic data out of Hong Kong, worse than even, uh, I think, the most pessimistic expectations, what are you paying most attention to right now, either in terms of real economic data or market data, whether it's funding market data, like Damien was talking about? What do you have your eye on here? Uh, in terms of real economic data, we're looking at the financial sector, financial services. Mm. If you think of uh, Hong Kong's core economic drivers, we've got consumption, that's domestic and tourism. Uh, and then we have exports, obviously taking a hit from the trade war. And the only thing that's really been positive driver this year has been financial services. But now with the protests expanding, we're seeing banks unable to have, keep their doors open, having a lot of people having to work from home. Maybe you, your guys, your Bloomberg guys there having to work from home. Our, mm. our people certainly are. So it's, it's really uh, concerning if the financial sector starts to feel the pain, then Hong Kong is going to slip much deeper into recession. I mean, Damien, you were saying the funding markets are something to keep a close eye on. What about in terms of economic data or some of the stats that you've been digesting and looking for in terms of telltale signs of how stressed it is? Well, I mean, unemployment, right? I mean, unemployment finally broken through that 3% handle. You had 3.1% unemployment. Private consumption off 25% uh, year over year. But yeah, no, I mean, for me, it's really that declining tourism, down 26% year over year. I mean, Hong Kong is built on tourism. I mean, that airline hub is the biggest uh, uh, port of call for any air freight globally. So, you know, as these kind of protests continue, you're really going to see trade come off, you're going to see tourism come off. It's going to be really negative for the economy. Rory, is anyone buying condos in Hong Kong right now? <laughs> no, no one's buying, uh, but tran transactions volume um, uh, are low. But the key thing to watch for me on the property market yeah. is when Chinese mainland start buying. There's a lot of businessmen, a lot of politicians, they're very connected. And suddenly Hong Kong uh, Chinese mainlanders start selling Hong Kong property. We know there's going to be real trouble ahead. <laughs> Rory, talk to us about 
the support or the aggression that we might see coming from Beijing? Because many were talking about the fact that stocks managed to hold, actually post a gain today in the Hang Seng. Is maybe the Chinese home team, some of the funds coming in, starting to buy into real estate developers, starting to buy into some of the be beaten up Hong Kong stocks? What about the actual executive action coming from Beijing? Will they start to move in to Hong Kong, do you think? No, they're still very, very reluctant to get involved. They don't want to put boots on the ground. I mean, the, the, there is no real upside for them to get to get deeper involved in terms of sending the PLA or even the People's Armed Police into Hong Kong. So they, they're hoping that the Hong Kong police can eventually get a, get a handle on things. But they, they remain very reluctant to, uh, to send in the, the PLA. Damien, I want to go back to what you were pointing out in the beginning and the short-term uh, spreads and that being the key indicator for people that aren't as well versed in these indicators and what they signify that gap between three month uh, yields in Hong Kong and uh, U.S. What is it really telling? Because obviously the Hong Kong dollar is pegged to so de facto import our uh, monetary policy. What is that widening spread really showing? Well, it, really, it really says that, you know, you're going to need to get a, a paid a higher yield if you're going to invest in Hong Kong. Right. That's why the front end yields are going up. If I'm just going to lend my money or park my cash in Hong Kong for one week or one month or three months, that return that I'm going to get off that, that yield is actually right. going up to entice me to come in there. But what I think is really interesting here is if you just look at credit default swap curves, right, the yeah. credit curve for Hong Kong, it's a double A rated credit. It shouldn't move anywhere near Argentina or Turkey or anything. But if you're looking to buy some protection, that might be one place to look because the curve really hasn't moved mm. since the protest started five months ago. And CDS curve flatteners have proven to be a very useful tool to mitigate this risk. And when you see the sort of event risk, the sort of jump, it has positive convexity, which gives it an asymmetric risk return profile. I'm not going to go into that show, but it also reduces, you know, the we'll negative. We'll do a whole carry. other blog just yeah. that. <laughs> asymmetric. I'll, I'll save you the grief. But I mean, but what it really does is it, it, it also reduces the negative carry, right? Because you're basically buying two year, you're selling five year, you're getting that, that, you know, you're basically not carrying negative as if you were just buying production outright. So there are these mechanisms available to just play for, you know, maybe Beijing does come in, maybe there is yeah. continued violence, and I think. Investors have to be mindful of that and probably protecting against it in this environment. Rory, on that point, you know, Damien's saying maybe Beijing does come in. We're starting to see a bit more of a systemic issue, knock-on effect from Hong Kong now. We've, Bloomberg's been interviewing money managers, investors, analysts who are saying that they're worried about maybe the knock-on impact of trade talks between the U.S. and China if we did see the U.S. have to retaliate in some way to further aggression in, in Hong Kong. We're also seeing... Well, bets being taken off going long on HSBC, for example, because the fact that its hub is in Hong Kong. How much of a systemic effect do you think Hong Kong could have? I, it would have things would have to go pretty badly wrong for it to have a real sort of systemic impact on China. Um, and it, it would be China where it would be felt most. And the key there really is it's still the... Uh, the hub, the the port, really for Chinese uh, external financing, the dollar financing, FDI flows, IPOs, all of it going through Hong Kong. So that would be where China might uh, start to feel a crunch if it loses access to um, to those offshore dollar markets. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.
What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.